Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without committing to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressures of trying to come up with some entertaining banter. A shout-out to Major Alan Abrams, who suggested this forum, provided substantive content, and he kept on me to make sure it got off the ground. Thanks, Alan. I'm Daryl Johnson of the Defense Council Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region, and I'm pouring myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. Before we get into the heart of this episode, let's talk a little about what we're doing here. Every two weeks or so, we're going to try and put out a new episode, and hopefully we will have additional contributors so that it's not always my voice and my perspective that you're hearing. The idea is to give you bite-sized podcasts that you can listen to on your own time. Generally, we're going to give you an update on the law and may demonstrate how to perform a particular type of trial advocacy, both at its most basic level and with a little more nuance. This is intended to help defense counsel, and it comes from that perspective, but really it could probably help anyone litigate better. A quick disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is educational only and is meant to convey ideas, not direct how anyone should litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial. These are the thoughts of the presenter and do not represent the views, the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interest of your client, consistent with the law and your professional ethical obligations. For this week's update on the law, we're going to talk about a recent decision from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, United States v. Tyler. The opinion was published on 26 April 2021 and involved two minor sexual assault victims, both of whom provided unsworn statements in sentencing under Rule for Courts Martial 1001A, which was the precursor to what is now RCM 1001C. A few things jump out about this case, where the issue was whether the military judge erred by allowing trial counsel to discuss the victim impact statements in sentencing argument, even though the statements were unsworn and not subject to cross-examination. Pellet defense counsel, as did the trial defense counsel below, argued that by referencing the unsworn statements, trial counsel argued facts not in evidence. The case makes three important points. One, that the military rules of evidence do not apply to victim statements. Two, the importance of being specific when objecting to a victim statement. And three, that counsel may, within limits, refer to victim statements in argument. So let's turn to each of these in greater detail. First, as mentioned, the court concluded that the military rules of evidence do not apply to victim unsworn statements. This actually makes sense because rules for courts martial, the rules for courts martial, not the MREs, establish what may be included and presented to the court in the unsworn statement. Specifically, in the current manual, it is RCM 1001C3, which states that the content of a victim statement, sworn or unsworn, quote, may only include victim impact and matters of in mitigation. End of quote. The RCM defines victim impact as, quote, any financial, social, psychological, or medical impact on the crime victim directly relating to or arising from the offense. End of quote. So that, and not the MREs, established the bounds 
of the unsworn victim impact statement. I would also point out that the CAF concludes that because the MREs do not apply to the victim unsworn statement, and because Article 6B excuses the victim from having to be sworn prior to giving the statement, that the unsworn victim statements are not evidence. The CAF has held the same for the client's unsworn statement. But in my view, this holding is unnecessary and it just doesn't make sense to me. I think I find it unhelpful. I think it would be more straightforward to acknowledge that the victim unsworn statement and the unsworn statement of the client is indeed evidence because evidence is anything that the fact finder may lawfully consider when making a factual determination, including the factual determination of how much punishment is appropriate and necessary. So to me, these are obviously evidence. The fact that they are not subject to the rules of evidence may impact the weight that the fact finder gives to that evidence, but they are nonetheless evidence. Again, this is my personal view, and it will get you absolutely nothing before a trial court or CAF, so take it for what it's worth. I share it only because it helps me as I think about it to put it in context. Uh, the distinction of whether it is or is not evidence I do not find helpful. I think it's more important to look at the bounds that the RCM place on it and ensuring that opposing counsel stay within those bounds. So setting aside my little rant on the definition of evidence, I'll now return to United States v. Tyler. The important takeaway from the fact that the MREs do not apply is that when defense counsel object or seek to challenge a portion of all the victim's unsworn statement or a portion of the victim's unsworn statement, counsel must refer specifically to the rules for courts martial and not the military rules of evidence. Which brings me to the second important point made by the CAF, and that is that the defense, it is the defense's, quote, duty to state the specific ground for objection in order to preserve a claim for error on appeal, end of quote. This is not anything new, but the CAF did stress that it is the defense's job to state the specific ground for objection, otherwise you fail to preserve the error for appeal. What that means is that failing to specifically state the specific content or portions of the statement that you are objecting to and citing all of the reasons why they are inappropriate could mean that the door is closed to any chance of finding an error on appeal because CAF might view it as having been waived. And even if CAF doesn't find waiver, it may find the issue is forfeited, which still makes it much tougher on appeal because they apply a tougher standard of review. So the takeaway here is to object to the issues you see for all the reasons you see. The majority of objections are likely going to be that the alleged impact contained in the statement, whatever was being shared, is too attenuated from the actual criminal conduct of the accused to be properly included within the victim's statement. Finally, and most importantly for the issue before the court, the CAF held that the parties may comment on a victim's unsworn statement because, well, because you can. Basically, they say that the unsworn is already in front of the members, just like the accused unsworn statement, so there's no reason to ignore it. On the one hand, this makes sense because it is consistent with prior holdings that state you can talk about the accused unsworn statement. On the other hand, however, the opinion is somewhat frustrating because the line on what type of comment is acceptable is not made clear. The case seems to hold that, as stated, unsworns are not evidence, but then that they can be commented on, but then those arguments can go too far. So where that line lies is not clarified at all in the opinion. So it'll be purely up to the military judge who'll be stuck sounding like Justice Potter Stewart talking about obscenity, saying, I know it when I see it. Again, also, this returns me to my prior rant about 
what is evidence. I think this would be much easier to understand if we acknowledge that both the victim and the client unsworn statements are, in fact, evidence that has been properly laid before the court, while also acknowledging that the fact finder may give that evidence less weight based on it having neither been subject to the MREs nor tested through cross-examination. However, considering the current state of the law, defense counsel may want to consider using Tyler to create a tailored instruction that advises the members that the victim's unsworn statement, quote, is not evidence, end of quote, and that the members may give it less weight in light of it having not been subject to the rules of evidence or to cross-examination, which is, of course, the greatest legal engine ever invented for the discovery of the truth. Understand, however, that doing so will likely invite a very similar instruction regarding an unsworn statement from your client. So this is an area where it's definitely a double-edged sword. Those are the points that I wanted to make regarding United States v. Tyler. The takeaway is that trial counsel are going to be able to discuss the content of the victim's unsworn statement in the sentencing argument. Defense counsel should object if trial counsel appear to argue that the victim's statement carries the same weight as evidence that has been admitted under the military rules of evidence. But where that line lies may be difficult to judge. Certainly, if the victim's unsworn contradicts other sworn testimony or properly admitted evidence, trial counsel should not be able to argue the unsworn is to be believed over the evidence admitted pursuant to the rules of evidence. Short of that, defense counsel may want to object when trial counsel referenced something in an unsworn statement that trial counsel could have but didn't admit during the government sentencing case. In my view, the objection would be... Uh, Facts not in evidence, as it was in Tyler, but it would require defense counsel to articulate that trial counsel is using the victim's unsworn statement as an improper means of avoiding the military rules of evidence. Perhaps defense counsel could request an instruction that informs the members that trial counsel could have, but didn't, offer the evidence in its sentencing case where the evidence would have been subject to the rules of evidence. The members could be advised that they may give the evidence less weight in light of it being offered only through the victim unsworn statement. Again, because your client often relies on their own unsworn statement, uh, everything in this area is a bit of a double-edged sword. But defense counsel's first and best line of attack should always be to scrutinize the victim impact statement and object to any matters that are not directly related to or resulting from the offense for which the client has been convicted. The CAF pointed out in Tyler that, the, that quote, the military judge has an obligation to ensure the content of a victim's unsworn statement comports with the parameters of victim impact or mitigation, end of quote. And that, of course, is now defined in RCM 1001C. Ensuring nothing objectionable in the unsworn statement should reduce the risk of improper sentencing arguments by trial counsel. So again, that's where the fight should be made. So that is United States v. Tyler and the current state of the law regarding the victim unsworn statement. Before I sign off, however, I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit about cross-examination. Specifically, I'm going to focus on the concept of depth on cross-examination. First, as you know, the basic format of cross-examination is to craft short, clear questions that elicit a single fact. Most of us, likely all of us, group these questions into different sections or chapters, and in each of these chapters, you're going to generally going to funnel some kind of broad point down to a very specific point. A choice that you need to make is how deep you want to go on any particular point. What do I mean by how deep? It has to do with how much you really want to drill down on a single issue. You don't want to go down a rabbit hole on something that isn't important and is going to waste 
the fact finder's time or confuse the fact finder, but you do want to bring out points that are really important for your case. So how do you strike that balance? Well, here are three rules of thumb. First, if you are going to get into a topic at multiple times in your cross-examination, consider drilling down with more granularity during the first iteration and simply pointing the witness back to that questioning when you get to it again later on. The classic example of this is laying the foundation for a prior inconsistent statement made during a law enforcement interview that you know is going to come up multiple times during your cross-examination. As you recall, impeaching with a prior inconsistent statement is done using the three C's, confirm, credit, and confront. And as a brief reminder, you confirm the in-court testimony that the witness just provided. You then credit the prior statement by pointing out why it should have been truthful and reliable. And then you confront the witness with the prior statement that directly contradicts the in-court statement. If you have several prior inconsistent statements from that law enforcement interview, you need to perform the three C's on each inconsistent statement, but you will likely want to use less depth after the first confrontation. The first time, you may want to go through all the details relating to crediting that earlier statement. I'll give you an example. You met with the investigators. You met with them at Cannon Air Force Base. There were two investigators. You met with them on the 1st of May. That was the 1st of May, 2019. This was just two days after the altercation. You knew they were conducting a criminal investigation. You knew they wanted to know what had happened. And they made sure you had a chance to have your lawyer present. And in fact, your lawyer was present. You knew you could ask for breaks whenever you wanted. You knew they wanted to know the truth about what happened. You knew they wanted to know all the details about what had happened. And so forth. Later, when confronting the witness with a prior and consistent statement from that same interview, you will not want to run through all of those again, but you can simply reference back to the interview by saying something like, again, you recall you provided a sworn statement to law enforcement on 1 May 2019. And that was the interview with the investigators that we talked about before. And then you can move directly into confronting the witness with that additional prior and consistent statement. The second rule of thumb on depth is to consider minimizing your death depth, <laughs> minimizing your depth about things that are bad or unhelpful and that you can't do anything about. For example, consider an assault case where your case theory is that the accuser is effectively a lying liar who lies. There are no third-party witnesses and no physical injuries on the alleged victim. Because the witness's description of the actual assault is plausible and somewhat persuasive, uh, you have decided to focus your defense on things surrounding the allegation, such as motive, lack of injuries, untimely reporting, etc. When conducting the cross-examination, you may want to discuss what happened before and after the altercation, but without going into the alleged assault. In this situation, you can keep things sequential by saying, and that's when you claim that the charged assault happened that you discussed with the prosecutor. And then you move on to whatever happened after that. That keeps the narrative sequential, so it's easy for the fact finder to digest, while avoiding going into the area where you can do nothing to benefit your client and would only reiterate the prosecution's points by going into it with the members. The third rule of thumb on depth 
is that the more important your point is to your case, the more detail you're going to bring out. This is the flip side of the second point. Cross-examination is like an accordion. You can stretch or condense your questions as needed to fit the notes you want to play. Sometimes that means broadening something beyond what the witness would give you at first blush, and that requires putting on your thinking cap. So what sort of topics are these? One example is pointing out that something makes no sense. Another is to show that someone had a had capacity at a particular point in time. You do that by hitting all the things that they were able to successfully do that demonstrate reasoning, decision-making, coordination, or what have you. The reason you want to get this sort of depth in these areas is to make your point stick with the fact finder. The point you are making may not be obvious or something that the witness that you are examining has ever even said before. It could be something that you pieced together from the evidence and now want to make it evident to the members. Using depth with your questions makes the point super clear for the fact finder because by asking all of those questions, you are slowing down your point. It highlights the point to the fact finder and simply by spending more time on it, you convey that that is important. You have other tools in your toolkit to help you make these points, such as signposting or even just changing the tone in your voice when you're asking the question. But spreading out the questions into bite-sized details gives the fact finder a chance to catch up with everything that you know about the case. Now let's do an example of this in action. Imagine you are cross-examining an accuser, an alleged victim. The accuser lives in the same dorm as your client, but on a different floor. They dated, but... After the alleged non-consensual conduct between them, they broke up. The accuser goes back to your client's room every day for a week straight, sets outside of his room, and laments through the door about wanting your client back. Let's do an example about how depth, combined with some other basic techniques, can help you bring out this counterintuitive conduct of the accuser more clearly. First, here's an example of the most basic way of hitting this point without much depth. Following the charged conduct, you broke up. Your testimony is that you broke up with him because of what he did to you. But after you broke up with him, you went back to his room in the following days. You went back to his room and were outside of his door. You did that every day for a week straight. You were outside of his door trying to ask him to take you back. So that's gets out the point that you're trying to make, that it's counterintuitive behavior inconsistent with the allegation. But here's a way to do it with greater depth. You just discussed the charge conduct with the prosecutor. After the charge conduct, you broke up with Airman Client. So what happened between the two of you, it's your testimony, that it bothered you. It bothered you, as you testified, that he would do that to you. It bothered you so much that you wanted to end the relationship. And that's what you did. You broke up with him. Not him breaking up with you. You broke up with him. Now let's talk about your interactions with Airman Client after you broke up. Specifically, let's talk about what you did. You did not call him. You did not text him. But you did go to see him in person. You went to his room. You went to his room just two days after the charged conduct. You went to his room every day after that for a week. A week straight. Your room is not next to his room. Your room is on a different floor. He did not invite you over. 
you just showed up. Let's talk about you going to Airman Client's room. You went there each day from your room. So each day you left your room, you went down the hall, you went up the stairs, you went down the hall toward client's room, you went up to his room, you stayed outside of his door. Let's stop here for a moment. After your breakup, Aaron Client did not call you. He did not text you. He certainly didn't stalk you. He did not try to reach you through anyone else. He left you alone. So all of these things we just went over about you going to his room, you chose to do them. No one made you do them. You chose to do them all. And each one, you could have turned back. But on each of those occasions, you didn't. You chose to keep going. All the way up to his room. Each and every day. Each and every day for a whole week. Now let's talk about what happened once you got to his room. You didn't just knock on the door and leave, right? You stayed there each day. You stayed there each day for hours. You stayed there each day for hours asking him to take you back. Now, there's plenty of room in this example to make different choices or to vary the questions. After each step of the journey from the accuser's room to the client's room, for example, you may want to point out that the client didn't make the accuser do that, or maybe some of these points aren't as important. But take a look at your questions and see if you are really asking enough to hammer home your points without any wiggle room for the witness. So that's it. Thank you for listening. I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thank you for listening, and best of luck trying your cases. skies drive the dark clouds far away and will you please say hello to the friends that I know it won't be long and they'll be happy to know that you saw me go I was 